I've listened to Siamese Dream by the Smashing Pumpkins for five years now. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. Everybody and welcome back to Spin It, the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music. I'm James. With me, as you know, is Connor. I'm not gonna say anything to tell you what to do. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was waiting on it. <laughs> no, I wasn't gonna. I learned. I can take advice. Well, hello everyone. We're back. We're doing Siamese Dream by the Smashing Pumpkins. That's right. Uh since it's October, we thought why not talk about the Smashing Pumpkins? It's pumpkin season, it's smashing season, and it only makes sense it's smashing season i have conflicting thoughts in my head right now okay what are your conflicting thoughts well i hear smashing pumpkins and my brain goes to two different pop culture references okay it goes to hulk smash and it goes to smashing from nigel thornberry (laughs) you know it's a big meme out there him saying smashing you know in the accent he has so right in any case he's voiced by tim curry did you know that no actually i had no idea But the really cool thing about that is that it's in no way related to the Smashing Pumpkins. What a guy. Anyway, are you familiar with the Smashing Pumpkins at all? Not at all. Yeah, your first (laughs) exposure is for the podcast. You told me about Siamese Dream, and then you also mentioned Smashing Pumpkins, but I couldn't remember which was the band and which was the album title. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the Smashing Pumpkins since you're new to them. They were formed in 1988 out of Chicago, Illinois. Which was a surprise. Really? Why? I don't know. I just imagined a band called the Smashing Pumpkins to be like early 2000s, not 1980s. Yeah, I mean, they're mostly known for what they did in the 90s. The original lineup was Billy Corgan on the guitar and the vocals, and he wrote most or all of the songs, you know, lyrically at least. Darcy Retsky played the bass, James Eha was on the guitar, and Jimmy Chamberlain was the drummer. And that's the original lineup, but they're really a band that's kind of infamous for their lineup changes, and they had a lot of, like, internal conflict from time to time, but that main four, for the most part, has kind of always managed to work things out. It's a convoluted mess of who was in the band when, because Darcy Retsky left in 1999, and then James Eha left until 2018 and everyone was in and out like crazy after their initial run from 1988 to 2000. It was kind of a revolving door after that. In 2000 they actually broke up for a while and they played a four and a half hour farewell show to commemorate the occasion. But then in 2005 Billy Corgan was like I'm gonna reunite the band. I'm gonna get the band back together and for the most part it worked. Like Eha and Retsky didn't come back and then Chamberlain did but admitted that he didn't want to so he left again by 2009 that sounds like it didn't work at all. What do you mean kind of worked? Two of the three other members didn't come back and the other one didn't want to. It didn't work at all. <laughs> they did come back eventually, though. Like I said, Eha came back in 2018 and it's just been insane. It's been insane the way that their lineup has changed. All right, then. Yeah. And what they kind of determined in that period when they tried to reform in 2005 was that, I mean, for Billy Corgan, the Smashing Pumpkins was just anybody that he could play his music with. The real Smashing Pumpkins were the friends we made along the way. The real Smashed Pumpkins were inside us all along. <laughs> But the current lineup is Corgan, Eha, Jimmy Chamberlain, who came back again in 2015, and Jeff Schroeder, who's been there since 2007. So that's where they're at nowadays. And actually, they just released a new album in 2020. It was fairly recent, so they're still making music. Still smashing those pumpkins. Plenty of pumpkins to smash. They won two Grammys in 1997 and 98, and both were Best Hard Rock Performance for Bullet with Butterfly Wings and The End is the Beginning is the End. They've also earned an American Music Award and two MTV Video music awards and the mtv video music awards are pretty interesting because they were kind of pioneers for a new direction of music videos so normally music videos you'd see on mtv were the traditional really commercial type of video that was meant to just sell more music it was pretty standard stuff just the band playing their instruments and it was like a fun time all around but the smashing pumpkins really tried to add an artistic flair to their videos billy corgan said we generally resisted the idea of what i call the classic mtv rock video which is like lots of people jumping around and stuff so they 
they tried to go for a more highbrow, artistic, abstract concept thing when they made their music videos. And it worked out for them, you know, winning video music awards. Yeah, that's a little awkward that they didn't want people jumping up and down because I definitely felt the urge to jump up and down to some of their songs. Yeah, I, they rock pretty hard. I'm, I'm sorry, Billy Corgan. I've disappointed you. Yeah, no jumping. No jumping around. This is artistic music. What if I jump around artistically? Uh, in that case, it's okay. It's all about the intent. Okay. You know, anything could be art. It's true. The Smashing Pumpkins have also had smashing success. Huh? Huh? They haven't done too bad for themselves. They've sold over 30 million albums worldwide in the last three decades. Pretty good. Yeah, you know, my Hippin' and Hoppin' album will do better. You're still on that? Yeah, I'm more on it now than I was before the Machine Gun Kelly episode, all right? We're gonna release a Hippin' and Hoppin' album. You've been thinking it over. It's gonna, it's gonna show up. I can't wait. Journalist William Shaw described the band's songs as anguished, bruised reports from Billy Corgan's Nightmare Land. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And that is really what Siamese Dream is at its core. Good old William Shaw summed that one up perfectly. Yeah, no doubt. If you have not yet listened to Siamese Dream and taken your own little delve into Billy Corgan's Nightmare Land... Go do it. Yeah, now's your chance to do it. There's a deluxe edition. There is. There's a lot of content on the deluxe edition. It's a dense record. I'm excited to go back because I only listened up through what we're planning to talk about in the episode. I plan to go back and listen to the entire deluxe edition, though. Wow, okay. I figure, you know, I always go back and listen to the albums again after we've had the recordings and why not do the entire full deluxe edition this time yeah really dig into it yeah siamese dream came out in 1993 it was their second record and it's one of their most enduring legacies right up there with 1995's melancholy and the infinite sadness melancholy pumpkins being smashed i feel like there's something there a lot of fruit the smashing pumpkins are, are pumpkins fruit are i guess they're gourd are gourds fruit well, the seeds are on the inside here we gotta find out are i, I don't know gourds that's a good question. Oh, more specifically, gourd refers to the fruits of plants in the two cucurbitaca a genre. Le- <laughs> saying syllables. Lagenaria and cucurbita, or also to their hollow dried out shell. That's what Wikipedia just told me. So smashing fruit. Yeah, they have melancholy and smashing pumpkins. Yeah, they're, the gourds are fruits because they're part of the flowering plant that contains the seeds like grapes or melons. Well, there you go. There you have it. This has been vegetable chat with spinach. You call it vegetable chat but we just determined it was a fruit (laughs) yeah you're right well but we started the i have no excuse anyway anyway fruit chat aside siamese dream is thoroughly alternative and hard rock the band really really resists any influence from punk music they say they're not influenced by punk at all even though you could kind of hear little trace elements of it in here and their sound has actually evolved a lot over time they're not the smashing punk no, they're not. You, you better not ever call them that again, because they're they're not. They're not. They're not the kin of punk. Ooh, there you go. That's that's a good way to remember it. If you ever wonder, hey, what are the Smashing Pumpkins not? You just remember that, and you'll know. <laughs> I learned a lot about this particular thing when I was researching. People say the Smashing Pumpkins have a shoegaze sound, which is a genre that I wasn't familiar with, so I looked it up. Shoegaze is a genre that's characterized by a lot of distortion and loudness and this really indistinguishable, swirly wash of sound, right? Ah, that exists very heavily in this album. Yeah, you can't really tell one instrument from another. Everything is kind of loud and in your face a lot of the time. And it's called shoegaze because guitarists who would play in this style have to constantly look down at their pedal boards so that they can play all of the effects that are required to make the the noise that you're hearing. Yeah, it was born out of hard rock in the 1980s, and it's really seen a recent revival, kind of with synth pop and alt pop. If you're looking for an example of shoegaze to check out, it seems like the 1991 record Loveless by My Bloody Valentine is considered a prime example. So that's our shoegaze tangent for the episode. Now you know a little more about shoegaze. Well, hand in hand with the shoegaze sound, you know, they really like to layer a ton of guitars over each other. Yes. Over and over and over to create their sound, which makes Siamese Dream feel like an absolute assault of stringed instruments. One of their producers called this the Pumpkin Guitar Overdub Army. Corgan actually says that Soma, one of the songs on this record, contains over 40 dubbed guitar parts. How did they do that in concert? (laughs) Beats me just by playing loud, I guess. He's explained the use of all this overdubbing by posing the question, 
question, when you're faced with making a permanent recorded representation of a song, why not endow it with the grandest possible vision? So I guess that answers your question. Because then when everybody comes to listen to you play it, it's a letdown? <laughs> listen, I've never seen the Smashing Pumpkins play live, but I can't imagine that seeing them in concert would be a letdown in any sense of the word. They better smash a pumpkin on stage. <laughs> Maybe that's how they start all their shows. Smashing Pumpkins, if you're listening, got an idea for you. When they recorded Siamese Dream, they actually relocated from Chicago all the way down south to Marietta, Georgia, because they didn't want all the distractions of working in a familiar environment. And also, their drummer, Chamberlain, he had a couple of vices that were probably better controlled in a different location. Billy Corgan kind of considered himself an anti-rock star, and he really didn't like the idea of all these rock bands that were on drugs and stuff all the time. He said that that was old, and he thought that, quote, bands should start representing reality instead of, you know, being on drugs and representing this false reality all the time. Yeah, yeah, it didn't work, though. No, it did not work very well. Yeah, Chamberlain still ended up having to go to rehab. He went on a five-day bender while they were there in Georgia that he was missing just on a drug bender. Yeah, and that and a lot of other things really led to a lot of conflict while they were trying to make this album. With all of them being in such close quarters for such a long time, things got pretty heated. One of the songs, Cherub Rock, Corgan made Chamberlain play the drum parts so many times in a row his hands started to bleed yeah well it's pretty intense that kind of regiment but honestly he nailed it on the record i would hope so it's maybe one of my favorite drum parts on the album well the point is his hands bled but it wasn't for nothing he really got it right yeah and afterwards he had to choose between staying in the band and going to rehab or drugs and he ended up going to rehab that sounds like a billy corgan level ultimatum yeah i mean i guess i can see why he was so hesitant to return to the band in 2005 if they've got him play until his hands bleed (laughs) yeah that is crazy. <laughs> because of all of that conflict and, and all of those issues, it took him more than four months to finish the record, and it cost over $250,000 by the time it was all said and done. Quarter of a million to make Siamese Dream. Wow. Still nothing compared to what Kanye spent. No, yeah, it's not even, like, it's a twelfth of that. Look at you. Did you have the math department do that math for you, or did you do that yourself? I had the math department do it beforehand. I looked it up. I can't take credit for that. Yeah, okay. The squirrels are very busy. They're going to start expecting nut raises if you have them do side projects like this. Can we please just let them focus on unit calculations? You're right. I'll just let them do their main job. All that money was well spent, though. It wasn't in vain because Siamese Dream debuted at number 10 on the Billboard Top 200, and it sold over 4 million copies, despite kind of hurting their reputation with some of their peers who started to call them the grunge monkeys and had other critiques of their style, which I don't think that's a very fair comparison. I think you're really missing the point if you listen to Siamese dream and say the smashing pumpkins are like the grunge monkeys monkeys like the band by the way not the mammal yeah I realized that when you said it the second time but the first time you said it I definitely thought you meant the animal and I was like man that's pretty (laughs) brutal no no like the monkeys like the pop rock band yeah I realized the clarification With that, I guess it's time for another fantastic week of Factor Spin. We'll see if I can keep riding my high. Yeah, let's get the mixtaper on over here. Get him out here. Hey, it's me, the mixtaper. I'm really excited about this week. I got some fun facts and or spins. I could tell you're really excited. The volume at which you enter the episode usually is an indicator of how excited you are for it. Yeah, sometimes I come in with a bit of a broken spirit. Yeah, well, I'm glad this isn't one of those weeks. This is a happy day, despite being a really sad record. For now. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, let's see. Uh, Let's just jump right into it with a crazy one. I'm all about crazy ones. Bring it on. Billy Corgan owns a 1930s themed tea house that has been visited by two presidents of the United States. Tea house? Yeah. A place to go get tea? Uh Uh-huh. What kind of tea? Like boba or sweet tea? Like, what are we talking? All kinds of tea. They got green teas, black teas, herbal teas, oolong tea. They got all the teas. That's pretty cool. They also sell teapots, teacups, and mugs. Matcha, which is like a type of like tea stuff. Oh, yeah. They also sell records and children's books and spiritual related items. Wow, that's a little bit of everything and a lot of bit of tea. Yeah. Is it in Chicago? It is in Highland Park, Illinois. Okay. Where is that in relation to Chicago? Is it close? Uh, yeah. It's a little north of Chicago, right along Lake Michigan. Okay. What's this place called? Madam Zuzu's. Does that name have any significance to him or is, did he just like it? I think it's just to go along with the 1930s theme. I, I don't know of any personal connection. What makes it so 1930s themed? Is it the decor? Just the, the style of it? It's in an art deco space that is very 1930s decorated. That sounds so cool. Which two presidents stopped by and had some tea? Is Obama one of them? He's a Chicago guy. Obama is in 
indeed one of them. Okay. It is Obama and Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter? Really? Uh-huh. Wow. When did the tea house open? How long has it been around? The shop opened in 2012, but then was forced to close in 2018 due to space limitations. But they recently just reopened in 2020, still in Highland Park, in a new larger space that has a built-in stage for live performances. That's really cool. I like this fact. I hope this place is real and owned by Billy Corgan. If this place isn't owned by Billy Corgan and real, it's still a cool spot, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say this is a fact. You're going to say this is a fact? Yeah, well, I mean, Billy Corgan is clearly a man of passion, and I think this would be a really neat little passion project to focus a lot of his energy on, especially in years when the band has kind of slowed down and they're not touring constantly or recording constantly when he's got the free time, you know? I think this is a fact. Well, this is a spin. Oh, really? It's a sneaky one, though. The majority of what we talked about was true, but you really didn't ask much about the presidential side of things, which is where the lie is. Well, I just thought they would stop in and say, hey, drink some tea. Yeah, I had a whole story for it. You know, I was going to talk about how Obama held a campaign rally in Highland Park that Jimmy Carter came to show support. And afterwards, they went to the tea shop and how the tea shop catered the event with cookies and tea. Like, I had a whole story built up and you didn't ask anything about it you just jumped right the fact i did so no presidents have visited then no presidents that i'm aware of have visited but the tea shop does exist it is a passion project that he works on when he's not out touring and things like that him and his life partner chloe mendel run it and work on it together well i'm glad it exists i feel a little cheated out of the point on that one not my fault you didn't ask enough questions about the president i didn't ask enough questions i did not that's on me my next fact jimmy chamberlain refuses to drink from plastic bottles Okay. Is that an environmental thing or is he like afraid of plastic? I don't know. It's an environmental thing. He only drinks canned and tap beverages, you know, things that can be easily recycled. Has he always been that way? Has he ever used plastic bottles? He started this back in the early 2000s when he started heavily investing in a startup company called Open Water, which is a carbon neutral canned water company. I think I've heard of that, maybe. It's going to sound stupid if I just said that and you made it up. (laughs) Other fun facts, he became CEO of that company in 2014. Okay, okay. Well, how? He invested in the company in what way that they decided to make him CEO? He invested a bunch of money. He did promotional things. He really started in at the ground floor, and he's been working with the company since early 2000s when they were just a small startup company, and he officially became CEO in 2014. Good for him. That's some initiative right there. He's worked with other companies such as Yahoo, Red Bull, YouTube, AEG, Vans, C3, and Budweiser for promotion for the company. Man, you've really filled this out. Whether it's a fact or spin, that's a lot of details to include. Yeah. So he came back to the Smashing Pumpkins in 2015. He was still the CEO and decided to rejoin the rock band? So as far as I can tell, he's still the CEO. I tried really hard to figure out if he still was, and I couldn't find any information saying he wasn't, so I assume he's still man. Which I I know sounds sketchy, but it's the truth. Or is it? I think it is. I think I'm going to say this is a fact as well. I think. I don't know. Oh, it's hard, but I'm going <laughs> to stick with fact. You threw out some really specific things in there about partnering with Yahoo and Budweiser and stuff. I was like, it'd be hard for you to make that up, really. I don't know if it necessarily makes sense with him coming back to the band, but uh, OK, I'm going to go with fact. This fact is spun again. Oh, <laughs> oh no, this is the week. It's spun again. Again, though, a good chunk of it is true. I just repurposed the information. So he doesn't refuse to drink from plastic bottles. He's not the CEO of Open Water, which is a real company, but he is CEO of a tech company called Live One, which is based out of Chicago. And they work on a product called Crowdsurfing, which is aimed to make it possible for fans to interact with one another while watching live stream of concert events. Wow. And so, yeah, he's worked with all those companies, I said, on promotion for Live One, not for Open Water. The Budweiser one was tricky because I was like, oh, canned beverages, Budweiser. Mm -hmm. Sure, Uh they'd be in. Yahoo uh, did see a little weird but they have a hand in everything don't they sure so yeah he has worked with all those companies just for a different company he's ceo of that one stings <laughs> i'm not happy about that one <laughs> like the tea shop one i could be okay with missing this one haunts me a little not off to a great start no i'm not i've had too many good weeks in a row and the bubble was bound to pop at some point my luck was bound to run out well my next fact for you darcy was jailed after several of her horses ended up in a walmart Okay, how many horses? How many horses what? Okay, good question. Let's start with how many does she have? She has 15 horses. Wow. I know. 
how many of them escaped? Uh, seven. And how many of those seven made it all the way into Walmart? Three. Side question. Okay. Where did the other four go? In 2009, seven of Darcy's 15 horses got loose after the gate of their pen was left open in Michigan. Most of them wandered into the farmer's field that's between Darcy's property and the nearby like town. Okay. And the ones that didn't make it into the Walmart were still just found in the field. Yeah. The three horses who made it into the Walmart, the Walmart's right there on the edge of town, and they wandered in through an open bay door in the back like where semi trucks would pull into oh okay i thought they might have used like the automatic you know motion sensor doors in the front <laughs> who found the horses was it just an employee in the back that went oh crap uh, that's my assumption is yeah horses wandered in and the employees back there were like what the heck who ordered horses we don't sell these <laughs> these aren't walmart brand horses great value horses <laughs> Aside from horses being where they shouldn't be, was there really any trouble? No, no, the horses were quickly wrangled and brought back safely, thankfully. Okay, good. Now, you said she was arrested. Yeah. Was that for leaving the gate open, or is there some other horse-related crime that you could be charged with when you do something like this? Well, she was horsing around, but Okay, okay. So, escaped animals are just a minor offense labeled as animals running at large. However, two years later, Darcy was jailed for failing to ever pay the fine associated with that and for missing four consecutive court hearings about it what why would you do that you're in a rock band i mean you've got money you have 15 horses you've got money i know how big was the fine i couldn't find that information okay she served six days in jail and had to pay an additional fine for missing the court hearings i hate the pressure that i feel right now (laughs) normally i'd just be able to guess one and go since i've already failed this one feels all the more important to get correct yeah Okay, I think I'm going to lock in that this is a fact. We're going fact again. You've guessed fact every time so far. Been wrong every time so far. I know, but it's been spins before, and I just, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm going fact because they... They can't all be fake, can they? But this is insane. This is the least likely one to be true. You changing your mind? What are you doing? I'm going with fact. Uh, I just lock it in. I'm going to rip off the band-aid. How bad is it? This fact is fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even surprised. <laughs> she did have a couple horses escape from her property, and she did get jailed for failing to pay the fine, but she does not own 15 horses, nor did any of them end up in a Walmart. So the jail part was true. The horse stuff is where the lies were this time. Yeah, it's conceivable that if Walmart's leaving doors open and there's a horse around, he would gallop on in. Sure. Oh, I'm feeling real good this week. I got one more for you. Oh, no. Let's see if we can round this out with a perfect game for once. Oh, no. Uh-huh. The final one. Oh. The band's name was chosen at random. How'd they choose the name? Flipping coins? A random word generator? What what happened here? Corgan said in an interview that, quote, it could have been any vegetable. It has nothing to do with liking pumpkins or Halloween. It just came to me at random. There's no related story. I don't know if I believe that. I don't. Because, I mean, you've seen some of these album titles and some of these song titles, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I know he picks out a lot of his titles through train of thought things he's quoted as saying you know something along the lines of if i write a song about a chandelier it's burning fire and the fire is red and red is the color you would wear if you want to avoid a bull charging at you and so you would call the song cow (laughs) so he's very complicated he's very complicated in thinking these things through and it seems like everything has to have some level of meaning to him well let's see if this clears or muddies the water he also says that the word smashing isn't a verb but an adjective Oh, it's not like we like to smash pumpkins or anything, and we are not amused by pumpkin jokes anymore. I like the idea of smashing being aggressive as well as wonderful. I don't know if that helps you or hinders you. So it's wonderful, as he called it a vegetable, but as we talked about earlier in our tangent, it is indeed a fruit. Fruit, fruit. So it's supposed to be a wonderful fruit, not destroying pumpkins. Or is it? I think... I think I'm going to have to say this one's a spin. You think I'm lying to you about all four? It's possible. Yes. The thing is, he's just so conscious about choosing titles and words. Like, he's got a whole process behind the train of thought he goes down. Everything is really meaningful. And he's so poetic with his lyrics and stuff. I cannot believe that the most important moniker that he's created was just willy-nilly like that. You're going with spin. I'm going with spin. Yeah! No, 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 no. It's a fan! 
back. The mixtaper's back, baby. He's done it the perfect week. Wow. <laughs> I can't believe There's it. There's three spins in a, in a fact this week, and you missed them all. I cannot believe it. <laughs> yes, after so many slumps in a row. What a comeback. Uh, <laughs> it's really just random? It. That's what he said in several interviews, that it's a random name. Wow. Just came to him. It could have been any vegetable, and he just wanted something wonderful, and so he went with smashing to represent that. I'm blown away. I'm stunned. I'm stunned. My evil degree finally paid off. Yep. You get a bonus this week. For your student loans, you get an extra little bump. I'm going to be able to afford dinner all week this week. That's right. You don't have to sit in the corner and gnaw on bread. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm still going to do that. Pumpernickel's delicious, but maybe I'll have something to go along with my side. You could smash a pumpkin. I could. Maybe I will to celebrate. Well, I'm going to just... We're done. We're done here. How, how, tell me how you feel right now. Tell me how you feel, because how you feel right now is probably exactly how I felt the last several weeks in a row. Yeah, I don't feel great. This is worse than a three and one, though. Anyway, get out. I just want to thank the audience, all the audience members who have been out there uh, supporting me through these hard times the last three weeks. Uh, I hope I made you all proud. All right. Goodbye. Uh, and I'll be back next week with more evil lies and truths. Go for two in a row, baby. Ah, oh, James, what happened? I don't know. What happened? I have no idea what happened there. You were doing so well. You know what? That means I'm going to have to listen to him gloat about this all next week. It's going to be insufferable. You have to deal with him when he loses and you have to deal with him when he wins. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about cover art. Let's move on past that into the rest of the podcast for my sake. You don't want to really sit here and dwell and talk about it for a little longer? Maybe talk about your feelings? No, let's talk about Billy Corgan's feelings instead. Oh, okay. That'll help. The cover of Siamese Dream is a nice photograph of two little kids with fairy wings on, hugging each other and, and laughing. What do you think about it? It's a really simple cover. I like it. Because this album, in a lot of places, deals with Billy Corgan's own childhood, especially songs like Quiet and Disarm talk a lot about his life life growing up and with his parents and stuff. I think in a lot of ways, this album cover just kind of encapsulates what Billy Corgan would idealize his own childhood as, what he would have wanted it to be. This carefree happiness, this, you know, youth. He wanted to be a fairy. Well, no. I mean, maybe, maybe. I don't know. Like Tinkerbell. The other thing, too, is the fairy wings really kind of... There's a lot of angel imagery throughout the album. Not least of all on Cherub Rock, you know, because the cherub is the little angel. What? No. Yeah. So it might have something to do with that, too. It might play into that. I think it's a misleading album cover in a lot of ways to just look at this. If you're seeing it for the first time, you're not really sure what to expect from the album. And then you fire it up and you're like, whoa, where'd this come from? Okay, yeah, but I feel like it's also a misleading album, so it matches. Like, a lot of this album, if you're not careful, if you're not paying attention to what you're listening to, some of it can sound happy because he uses a lot of sarcasm in his lyrics. And so if you're not paying attention or understanding what's going on, you could get the exact opposite meaning than what he wants you to get. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Billy Corgan is a master at sarcasm and at kind of backhanding his lyrics like that, twisting them around so that they say one thing but sound like they're saying another. Or on the surface level, they're like in high praise of something, but really that's just said in an ironic way. But Speaking of his ironic sarcasm and writing style, that is super prevalent on the first track, Cherub Rock. Yeah, that one has a fun, like, march intro, like the snare drum. The drum rolls. Yeah. I think Cherub Rock is maybe one of my personal top 100 songs. Really? At the very least, I will never skip it. Really? Yeah, I like it a lot. Interesting. That's awkward. Oh, you didn't like it then? <laughs> uh, no, no, I liked it. It just it didn't even make honorable mention, let alone top three. Wow. Part of that might have to do with, it was the first thing that I ever heard from the band. It was really my introduction to them. Uh, me too. Well, fair point. Fair point. <laughs> yeah, no, I really liked the song. It was a good song. There's a couple songs in here that I felt were just mediocre. This isn't one of them. This was a good song. It just didn't yeah. make top three. Fair enough. According to Corgan, Cherub Rock is about his relationship to the indie world and to the media. Like we talked about, a lot of their peers called them the grunge monkeys and stuff. They really were kind of outcasts in their own field. You know, suddenly he was thrown into this whole culture and this position of being a rock star, and he really fought back against it, against that whole stereotype and his classification as such. And he was really determined to maintain the integrity of his art in the face of stardom. Like, he didn't want to sell out. And that is where we get this song. As long as there's some money, who wants that honey? Let me out. Yeah, the lyrics are venomous in the song. I mean, they're potent. Yeah. When starting listening to this, I got a very Nirvana-like 
feel from them. And I understand both Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins would hate that comparison. Absolutely. You know about the connection to Courtney Love? I assume you do, right? You seem like big fans. I do, yeah. Courtney Love is the ex of both frontmen for these bands, Kurt Cobain and Billy Corgan. Yeah, she's the two-time ex of Billy Corgan. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I didn't didn't know about the two-time thing. She was dating or like seeing him, you know, when she first met Kurt Cobain. Oh. She was actually on her way to see him when she ended up at their concert and ended up in Kurt Cobain's bedroom instead. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, and so she very quickly fell for Kurt Cobain, ended up pregnant, they got married, had a kid, all that. Then he died, and back in the mid-2000s, she and Corgan reunited and started dating again, and he even moved into their house with her and her daughter. Wow. I mean, no wonder he hates being compared to Nirvana. That makes perfect sense now. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Absolutely venomous lyrics. It, the song starts right out with freak out and give in. It doesn't matter what you all believe in. It's this super cutting sarcasm, you know? That intro riff was one or two times too long for me. Really? Oh, I love it. I do too. I love the way that they layer the instruments to build up on one another there. But right as everything was finally all happening at once and gelling, I felt myself ready for it to move on. I expected the hit to get into the actual lyrics. And then it didn't happen. I was like, oh, they got me. It must come one more. You know, sometimes you'll delay it by one. Yeah. But then it went on another one and then a third one after that. And I was like, oh, come on. Just get to it now. You've outstayed your welcome intro riff. I don't know. I love the way that the intro riff opens the curtains for this album. You know, it's like the show's starting because it starts in with the drums, the drum roll and the march thing. And then they kind of hit with the guitar on the do 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 And then you really click into it when the drums start going on the normal beat. Like they just do a little roll right into the normal groove of the song. I mean, you know, he played it till his hands bled when they recorded it, like we said, and it's not for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's very good. Just a little too long. It's like you said, they were opening the curtains and the curtains opened and then they quickly brought the curtains back in a little bit so they could open them a little more. <laughs> I was like, nope, <laughs> just stay open, <laughs> move on. Fair enough. One thing I will say is Billy Corgan's singing voice does take a little bit of time to warm up to, I think. Yeah, it does. And it's sometimes, I think, unnecessary, unfortunately. Like, there's a couple times where it detracted from some of the songs. But for the most part, I actually liked it once I warmed up to it. Yeah, once you get past the initial stage of, oh, then you're really kind of along for the ride. It's just cool to listen to the way that he can transition from something so breathy and light, like, you know, at the beginning of Cherub Rock, yeah. or in some of these other songs, like Mayonnaise or whatever. Then he suddenly starts yelling pretty intensely, like he does in the middle of Quiet. Like, it's just, he really takes it to the limit on this record, dynamically. Uh-huh. I love me a good guitar solo, and this song has it. Oh, this is one of my favorite guitar solos anywhere ever. I would agree. At least on this album. I don't know about anywhere ever. Yeah, yeah. But on this album, for sure. It's short, but heck, is it ever expressive, you know? Mm-hmm. And the lead guitar parts that come after it, just in the mix of the chorus, are fantastic. One of my favorite lines, just as a side note, one of my favorite lines is in the second verse where he says, all those angels with their wings glued on are scared if you don't stare. Yeah. Uh, That's the abridged version. There's more lyrics in between them. But like these people that we've manufactured into celebrities and rock stars are so terrified of losing your approval that they have to stay cool and put on a show and compromise their convictions just for the honey, you know, for the money to stay relevant. That's such a cool line and such a unique way to say it. Yeah. I mean, I really like verse two just as a whole kind of calling out the hipsters because you mentioned that they kind of were trying to push the boundary on what was rock right with their music videos and their sound yeah they definitely went for a more highbrow interpretation of their own music yeah and i feel like they're calling out all those people i mean the pre-chorus is all about selling out right and like this verse is very similar right talking about how they're scared if you don't look so they're willing to do whatever it takes to make you look do whatever you want them to do in order to get you to look yeah. I mean, yeah, this entire verse is calling out the fans who demand that the hipsters unite kind of things like all oh, you get together go on come on like he's being very sarcastic about it right it sounds like he's like a call to action right he's like come on hipsters unite fight yeah but really he's being completely sarcastic <laughs> absolutely and in that way too i mean i know again they hate the nirvana comparisons and they're so different in general like at their core uh-huh but this is the same kind of sentiment that was on come as you are and on in bloom he's the one who likes to sing along and and he knows not what it means like calling out the people that are fake fans or that kind of try to get the band to fit the mold of what they want them to be. Yeah. I love the end of this song too because the drums start rolling again. They start picking mm-hmm. up really big and then you're just all of a sudden on this head first collision course with the end of 
the song. And it ends with that really big rock and roll. Bam, yeah. Like it just rings. I love that. But really, I think to sum up this song, he's really just telling all those fake fans to be quiet. All right. I just had to get it out there. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is. But that takes us into the second song, Quiet. Another dark themed song. Yeah. Like if you thought this one had some kind of darker, venomous lyrics, like, man, this one goes to a way darker place. It does. Quiet is a song about Billy's relationship with his parents. And yeah, it bites. Specifically, is it about his parents? Like, was he abused as a child? Because that's what I was getting from this was like, it was about child abuse. It is about child abuse and it is about his parents. All right, then. I don't want to get too into specifics. I mean, but listen to the song and you'll get a, a pretty significant window into that. Yeah. The first verse comes right in. Quiet, I'm sleeping. For years I've been sleeping helpless. Couldn't tell a soul. Really bleak. You know, you're just trapped and hopeless. It's a lot to process. Yeah. And as the song goes on, I kind of felt like he was pushing us into thinking that he's pretending to be asleep Mm -hmm. so that he can avoid dealing with the harsh reality. He says, I don't trust you. I can't hear you. Like a little kid would. Yeah. Be rolled over, fake sleeping, just hearing everything that's going on around him, but trying to block it out by saying, I can't hear you. This isn't this isn't real right now. Mm -hmm. The lyrics to the song are very melodic, but there's that guitar slash bass you know, in the background that's really driving the tempo of the song and keeps that from becoming stale. Because, I mean, it's a very, like, melodic and slow lyrical rhythm, but you hardly notice it because of the instrumentation in the background just driving you forward the entire time. Yeah, this might be a stretch, but I felt like, you know, we're talking about the shoegaze style. The aesthetic of quiet with all the fuzzy guitars and everything happening in the background feels like a blanket. Like, it just blankets this song in an aura, you know? I don't know how to describe it really. Yeah. But it's softer around the edges than Cherub Rock was, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. It's still loud and it's still in your face, but they managed to pull off this well-rounded... But in like a pretty way. It's a very pretty sounding song for how dark of a theme it is. Yeah, it's strange. The kind of cognitive dissonance that it causes. And it's fun. Like, again, if you're not paying attention to what he's actually saying... It's a rocking song, yeah. You'd be like, oh, this is a fun song, you know? But then, like, you pay attention to what he's saying, you're like, oh, oh gosh. Yeah, the chorus he says be ashamed of the mess you've made my eyes never forget like that really sounds like a strong admonition against his parents be ashamed of the mess you made i mean the mess that they've made in his eyes is him oh my gosh it's so good so good in fact it made connor top three quiet in the connor top three how about that yeah which was surprising because it is like the third least played song on spotify on this album yeah i couldn't believe it when i saw that number i was like really i know it's insane it's always been a notable one for me too man and then in the bridge he sings we are the fossils the relics of our time mm-hmm. we mutilate the meanings so they're easy to deny like we just change our minds about what happened in the past so that it's easier to forget about to deal with it's insane but like again fossils are permanent remains of a time before so yeah. it's like while you've mutilated what happened and you've tried to change what happened in your mind so you can deal with it you yourself are still a living representation of what you went through you're still molded by it yeah exactly Exactly. Wow. That's just a wow lyric. It's very good. I I feel like there's a lot to say about quiet and we could talk about it a long time, but we probably have to keep things moving. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about today. This one surprised me. Yeah. It came in very subdued compared to the previous two songs. Oh yeah. The opening riff is a (laughs) thing of beauty. It just overflows with this emotion. I was listening to it. I was trying to figure it out because it's just, it's this little bit of hope and a little bit of hopelessness. And I don't know. It just fits like a puzzle piece into this song and what it describes. This is another must know pumpkin song i think if you're gonna know any songs by the smashing pumpkins you gotta at least be familiar with cherub rock you gotta know today it's another super prime example of his unique brand of cynic sarcasm you know if you listen to the first few lines you would be deceived today is the greatest day i've ever known sounds really pleasant uh-huh the lyrics are sneaky i mean in some spots <laughs> i mean just I'm from the very beginning right there today's the greatest day i've ever known can't live for tomorrow it makes it sound like you're just really happy with today but again if you You've been paying attention to the previous two songs and his style of writing, you realize, oh, this isn't a happy song. No, yeah, today's the greatest day I've ever known, but I'll burn my eyes out, I'll tear my heart out before I get out. It's really a song about experiencing this extreme depression and what he was going through at that time. It was really kind of a a rock bottom type moment for him. But as he's grown, Billy has said that this song has taken on becoming more of a song of survival about how to persist through the worst days, even when it's ugly, even when 
you'll tear your heart out. Like he, you keep living, you know. Yeah. The other interesting thing about this one is, whereas the other two songs, the defining feature I think was the music and the instrumentation really driving the song. I think on this one, the lyrics are what's driving the song, and again, the instrumentation is way more subdued throughout the whole song compared yeah. to the other two. It is subdued sometimes, but I will say the build into each of the choruses is really nice when they start to ease that fuzz back into the mix. Sure. This song has a good ebb and flow to it. It's the first time that they really implement that, and it's not all go all the time, and it works so well. And again, man, he's just a poet, you know? He sings pink ribbon scars that never forget. I tried so hard to cleanse these regrets. My angel wings were bruised and restrained. My belly stings. What a verse. Very good. And again, we're back on that motif of angel wings Mm -hmm. that we saw on the cover that we saw in Cherub Rock. It's a lot. Uh, This song also makes it in the Connor Top 3, two in a row. As it should, I think. And then he closes the whole song out with that repeating, today is the greatest, today's the greatest day that I've ever really known. And I think the addition of that really in the last line is smart, you know, because maybe you've known other days, but you've never really known them. Maybe other days have been great, but you've never really got it until today. You know what I mean? Yeah. Up next was the first disappointment on the album for me. Okay, yeah, Hummer is the next track, and I think I can understand that. I don't think it's necessarily a bad song. Compared to the other three, it's just it's just very meh. Yeah, it's super different. My notes for this song, as it starts, is, what is this start? I hate it. Make it stop. Finally, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> Some of my first four notes. Yeah, with that little, with that radio type noise, the band Yeah, and it just builds and builds. I'm just like, oh. I think it's meant to be abrasive like that. And it works. And I don't know if that intro ruined the rest of the song for me or if I just wasn't digging it or what, but the song as a whole just didn't land for me. I think part of what it might have been is that, you know, Hummer is unique and it represents the band's creative process. When they would write a song, they would change it up so many times from day to day. James Eha said, and I quote, The songs mutate in 50,000 different directions. Songs would change over a few days or change over months, but generally they always come out very different when we're through. So what happened with Hummer is that a bunch of those different sections in the song, they've undergone that process. The first and the third stanzas are the same, but otherwise it's a collage of all these different sections that evolved as they were creating the song. Interesting. So maybe that's why it didn't land is because there's not as much repetition, not as many hooks that you can grab onto. Repetition wasn't the problem. You know me. (laughs) Well, well, yeah. But what I mean is it's, it's almost disorganized. Yeah, it felt very much like some of Kanye's songs where he just took a bunch of different stuff and tried to slam it together and it didn't really feel cohesive Mm. in terms of the song's meaning corgan described it like this he said to be yourself you must live your life to live your life you must be free it's an interesting quote yeah it is an interesting quote i kind of like it yeah one thing that i made a note of was i said i love the opening riff not the like radio skipping part but the the guitar part when it comes in i love that and so does corgan he said he played it so much when they rehearsed it the very first time that they did it that it gave him a headache they played it for a half hour straight huh that would really that'd be a headacher but you gotta really like it to do that and there's some of these lyrics that really jumped out to me too He says, when I woke up from that sleep, I was happier than I'd ever been, which reminded me a lot of quiet and today with being asleep and finding happiness. Yeah. And then he says, happiness will make you wonder. Will I feel okay? It scares the disenchanted far away. And it's this idea that being happy suddenly makes you realize how unhappy you can be, which is where we get the origin of life's a bummer when you're a hummer. Corgan actually intended for that line to be about someone who hums songs to himself. Oh, I like that. Yeah. He said, hummer is the idea that life is not designed for those who are cheerful, whistling daydreamers, but it's designed to be cruel and mean. Oh, so the happier your disposition, the sadder you end up being in life as life lets you down. That aloofness, being a hummer, being someone who floats above everything like that is only going to make you fall harder when the time comes its delivery is off i think which is what makes hummer feel like a meh song but i still think it packs a pretty good emotional punch you know the message is still in there yeah yeah the delivery's off but the goods are what you wanted yeah exactly well let's put hummer behind us and let's move on to rocket rocket was the first real song that they wrote for the record it started out without any actual lyrics so when they would play it live billy corgan would just quote fake his way through them at every show (laughs) and he said it didn't matter because people couldn't understand it anyway fair enough i really like this song for the way the music and the rhythms form to emphasize the rhyming scheme like the way everything builds and you hear those rhymes the way they hit all the rhyming words is really pretty yeah otherwise the song is just another meh one for me really the majority of the song when we get towards the end of the song it does something fun but i'll let you talk about the beginning and end first i mean in the beginning of the song i i agree it's never been much for me musically but lyrically i do like it he starts out with bleed in your own light dream 
dream of your own life. I miss me. I miss everything I'll never be. Like, I regret my lost potential, you know? Yeah. It reminded me a lot of The Road Not Taken or whatever by Frost. Yeah. Kind of like reminiscing about how you can never walk down the other path once you've chosen one. You miss out on all that potential. Yeah. Yeah, it's true in a lot of ways. And in the later verses, which I guess is around where the song started to click in for you, that's where we get into this idea of being a rocket. He says, consume my love, devour my hate, only powers my escape. The moon's out, the stars invite, I think I'll leave tonight. Soon, I'll find myself alone to relax and fade away. I shall be free of those voices inside me. Yep. That's kind of what the song is about, this escape, this freedom by taking off like a rocket. Yeah. At the end of the song, they hit what I think should be the final chord. And I'm like, oh, that was an awesome chord. My favorite chord hit in the entire thing. What a way to end the song. And then they do like this chaotic build of sound after it that they then end on. I was like, no, get that out of here. That would have been the perfect ending. And then they ruined it with a bunch of chaotic sounds. Wow. I loved how it slowed down at the end. Like it really mirrored that metaphor of breaking free and getting out of the flow. Yeah, I loved how it slowed down. Well, I thought that sonic build that you apparently... <laughs> hated i thought that was kind of like a rocket taking off you know super clever i think maybe that's what they were going for but i didn't like it uh to each his own but you're wrong (laughs) (laughs) i'm just kidding This is another transition that really smacks you in the face to go from that chaos and that rocket launch right into Disarm, which is one of the softer sides of the record, and it really catches you off guard. I'm just going to say now, Disarm rounds out the Connor top three. Disarm in the top three. Okay. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it is. It is so good the bells i love the bells and then like the violin sound i don't know if that's actual violins or if he's doing something with the guitar or what but it sounds like strings there's an actual string section yeah an actual orchestral part to go along with it yeah it is nice disarm is another song about his parents and he actually wrote it on the same day that he wrote today that's cool so two of your top three songs were from the same exact day billy corgan says i thought i'd get back at my parents through song and rather than have an angry violent song i thought i'd write something beautiful and make them realize what tender feelings I have in my heart and make them feel really bad for treating me like crap. This is one of those songs. Like you've talked about how the lyrics have been really good throughout the whole album, right? I mean, they're really good with how he creates his lyrics, but this one just really, really great lyrics. That's all I can really say. Yeah. He sings, cut that little child inside of me and such a part of you, which is a lyric that talks about how he grew up too fast, how his parents effectively killed his inner child and he was forced to mature at such a young age. He really missed out on a lot of that youth. Yeah. And in the chorus, I used to be a little boy so old in my shoes and what i choose is my choice what's a boy supposed to do the killer in me is the killer in you like oh like what i do now is just a reflection of all the things that you taught me to do yeah and he starts off every verse with disarm you with a smile like i'll lower your defenses i'll make you trust me and then i'll cut you down like that's poignant and to have that as the song that's so acoustic and reserved like this yeah it the the music itself is disarming in a way to drop that wall of sound for this acoustic and orchestra that's a good point i hadn't thought of that my only critique on this song is you mentioned earlier that his singing style is a little hard to get used to at times yeah like if this song was sung with a different singing voice i think it would become one of my top favorite songs of all time wow that was the only thing holding it back was there several moments in the song where the way he's singing it i it didn't mesh with what the rest of the song was doing in the way I wanted it to. Yeah. That was my only critique. I I love the song. It's just, it's almost like keep everything the same, but put someone else singing it almost. And it would have been one of my favorite songs of all time. Yeah. There's actually an acoustic version on the deluxe edition. I plan to go listen to. That's part of why I want to do the whole deluxe edition. You gotta, especially for a song like disarm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to leave it on the last line that really stuck out to me. Disarm you with a smile and leave you like they left me here to wither in denial. Wow. I mean, do you think there's a single moment of certified buffoonery on this album? Because if there is, I can't find it. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of certified poetry. With all that about Disarm, let's move on to Soma. This song, the way he's singing at the beginning of this, where it's more stripped back and he's singing without that kind of like, I want to say grunge to his voice. Yeah. That's what I want on the previous song. Sing it like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Soma is the name of a happiness drug in the book Brave New World. Uh Uh-huh. I knew that. 
This is a breakup song. He says, it's all about the girlfriend who left me. I tried to put all my anger into those words. Soma is based on the idea that a love relation is almost the same as opium. It slowly puts you to sleep. It soothes you and gives you the illusion of sureness and security. Very deceiving. Do we think it's about Courtney Love then? Seems pretty coincidental. <laughs> it might have been. It's certainly possible. There's definitely at least one or two other songs on this record that are speculated to be about Courtney Love. So this one wouldn't surprise me. I just love how the music sweeps you off into this dreamy, lofty feeling. Yeah. Like to talk about this song as a numbness, like an opioid trip, or getting left by a love that's become so important to you, they do a really great job of building a sound that matches what they want the song to be about. You can understand what it's about in the lyrics, but you can also feel it in the music to a degree. Yeah. The concept of like sleeping exists in this one again with close your eyes and sleep, don't wait up for me, hush now, don't you speak to me. Yeah. It's another lyrically complex song. I like it. It absolutely is. I think my favorite line on the entire song is in verse two. He says, wrap my hurt in you and took shelter in that pain. The opiate of blame is your broken heart. Yeah, it's pretty good. My personal favorite moment was just on the first bridge where he goes, one last kiss, good night. But the way that he hits the word night, it was my favorite moment on the song. I like Soma a lot. Uh, the song does feel a little long. It is a little long, as a matter of fact. At six and a half minutes, it's that's a hefty track. They do a good job of keeping it going. It keeps moving, even though it's pretty long. Yeah. But boy, do we ever rip our way right out of Soma. <laughs> Geek USA is just explosive. <laughs> there are close to 30 overdubbed guitars on this track, which is a lot. 30? 30. And the guitar solo in this song is ranked at number 54 on Guitar World's Greatest Guitar Solos of All Time list. Corgan said that the solo completely jacks up the song. It's there because the song needed to kick up another notch. Like, it's up. It's up all the notches, Billy. <laughs> I can agree with him somewhat because there was a note I made where I said, I'm not sure how I feel about this melodic section where it kind of gets all melodic-y in the middle. I wasn't sure how I felt about that. This song actually had probably my favorite chorus yeah. on the album. I really like Shot Full of Diamonds in a Million Years, The Discipline disappear like they were never here i like the message that it has i like how he sings it i like the rhythms the tempo i love everything about it and they only give it to us twice yeah it's rare it's, <laughs> it's uh it pops up twice and it goes so long without it like it pops up pretty early on it's like right after verse one which kicks off the song and then it pops up almost right away again and then you go through like several bridges two guitar solos and like three more verses and they just never give you that chorus again i was like please yeah just a lot of the lyrics work that he does on this one feels different in style than a lot of the previous songs. You know, they're so poetic for their content, and I think these lyrics are very poetic for their meter, for the way that the words sound. Mm -hmm. He says, lover, lover, let's pretend we're born as innocents, cast into the world with apple eyes, to wish, wish dangerous, my dear delirious, to try and leave the rest of us behind. I mean, that's packed full. It really is. This is the song that uh, I mentioned earlier that I said would be fun to jump in and down in concert to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Corgan says that he's always been a geek, and he says, You begin to revel in your own lack of ability to be cool. We were this band of complete idiots playing long guitar solos that everyone considered passe. They really love to come up with titles for their songs that aren't mentioned in the songs themselves. Yeah, it's true. Honestly, I was a little disappointed by this. Geek USA is the song from which the title Siamese Dream is derived. I know, but it's just, it's not even the name Siamese Dream, it's just Siamese Twins, and they just. Well, it's true. I mean, the whole bridge goes, In a dream, we are connected. Siamese twins at the wrist, and then I knew we'd be forsaken, expelled from paradise. Yeah. So, I mean, the dream is mentioned. I just thought Geek USA was a weird song to highlight as the title song. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't like the slowdown again. I wanted this whole song to be fast-paced. It's like, no, keep the energy going. Now, they do let the energy die off a little bit, and then that slow reduction of energy trickles right into mayonnaise. Is it an instrument? Mayonnaise is not an instrument. Horseradish is not an instrument either. <laughs> Uh, I did not expect a song called Mayonnaise to be a ballad, that's for sure. Uh, I know, right? Mayonnaise was the last song written for the record, and Corgan just threw together a bunch of weird one-liners, as he said. But, like we mentioned in Today, the same thing kind of happened, where he grew up, and he's realized since then that this song is really, really reflective of his experiences at the time. He said, I can see why people identify with it, because now I identify with it. I, I will say I feel lied to on this song. Don't say that you feel lied to, because it's not about mayonnaise. 
<laughs> well, never mind then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're getting predictable. <laughs> Manny's is one of my top threes on this album for sure. Really? Absolutely. The guitar work is just beautiful the whole way, whole way through. It's top notch. It almost got the honorable mention. You know, I've already rounded out my top three, but it almost got honorable mention. Interesting. I really love the soft guitar that starts and ends this song. I love so much of it. The lyrics go, fool enough to almost be it, cool enough to not quite see it, doomed. Pick your pocket full of sorrow and run away with me tomorrow, June. We'll try and ease the pain, but somehow we'll feel the same while no one knows where our secrets go. And that break in between no one and knows and then secrets and go is just phenomenal every time. And it only gets better as the song goes on. Mm -hmm. There's actually a funny story behind that too. Billy Corgan bought a really cheap guitar from like a pawn shop or somewhere. He said he spent like $65 on it. And every time he would stop playing it, it would make that feedback sound. So when they were playing this song and they put that break in there, he said, hold on, let's use this guitar and make that feedback sound a part of the recording. So that's what it is. Every time it stops and beeps, squeaks like it does, it's the cheap guitar doing its thing. So do you know why this song is called Mayonnaise? Yeah, I do. Okay, cool. Please tell me. I have no idea. Well, you're not going to like the answer. And the answer is because Billy Corgan looked in his refrigerator. Wait a second. I know. So Mr. Oh, there's no way the name of the band could be so random because he's so careful about what he calls things. Well, knows that this song got named because of what was in his refrigerator. Well, okay, so. There's probably some other thought process that went into it, but as far as he's come out and said, there was just mayonnaise in his fridge. Now I don't feel bad for you for missing that fact. <laughs> Fair enough. One of the best lines in the song, I think, and one that might be applicable to my factor spin round today is, and I fail, but when I can, I will. Try to understand that when I can, I will. I love that a lot. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like I could talk forever about some of the lyrics, but I'll refrain. My point is, personally, I think if you're going to just listen to one single track from this record, mayonnaise would be a strong pick. Just know the whole album. Have a Siamese dream. I mean, honestly. Uh, right, yeah, it's worth your time. Let's talk about Space Boy. Space Boy is an intriguing track. Would you like to take a guess at my thought process for this title? I can only imagine. I No, what, what was your thought process? Space Boy. It first reminded me of Space Cowboy from Casey Musgraves' Golden Hour, which then reminded me of the joke I made about Space Cowboy, about the SpongeBob reference, uh, Cowboy King in Space or whatever it is. That's an awful way to go into this song. In actuality, Space Boy is about Billy's brother, Jesse, who was born with cerebral palsy, Tourette's, and heart problems. And then it's about all the ways that Billy relates to him as kind of a caretaker, but then watching him grow up and become more independent. Yeah. Billy said, I feel our lives are similar. Freaks of society. I've always felt that no matter how normal I appear, I was treated differently. And it's probably not a perfect correlation, but the idea is that he felt like he understood his brother because he was also this social pariah of sorts. Mm. He named the song Space Boy because apparently his brother loved astronauts and all the stuff that had to do with space. So in the chorus, he talks about his brother and calls him Space Boy. Space Boy, I've missed you spinning around my head, and any way you choose me, you'll break instead. Because as his brother grew up, he didn't need to be under Billy's wing so much. And Billy said that that made him feel rejected in a way. You know, to have someone that depends on you start to not need you as much anymore sure so to choose him to be a friend instead of a caretaker is kind of what the song gets at any way you choose me it won't be wrong any way you choose me we won't belong yeah like yeah we can still be friends he's coming to terms with the idea that the relationship is no longer going to be what it used to be but we can still relate to each other in this way that we're both social outcasts mm -hmm. i was a bit skeptical of this song at first i understand that it takes a minute i was a bit skeptical but then that first hook was very beautiful when he first says and Space Boy, I've missed you, blah, 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 so on and so forth. And then verse two, I felt was way better than verse one. And so the song got better as it went on. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think Space Boy is the happiest song on the record. I think so too. It's this song of love. Yeah, because it's about like his one apparently a good relationship. It seems like he had a decent relationship with his brother. Feels like this is a song. This is a ballad to the one person he had growing up that was a positive relationship. So it makes sense that it would be the happy one. Yeah, and it's a nice breath of fresh air at this stage in the album. Yeah. Because it's track 10. I mean, it's, it's later in the game, but it's a good reprieve from the weight that we've been seeing throughout track 11 let's just call this one track 11 <laughs> or we can bring out the bleep button that's your call no, we're bringing out the bleep button all right well tell the people this one this one is called silver 
<laughs> yes, it is. You censored it in our notes document that we keep track of stuff. And so I decided in my head that the asterisks were going to be for the letters O and R. So this would be Silver Fork. Silver Fork. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So we could call the song Silver Fork. Uh, that's clever. I like it. Like Geek USA, this is another one that's absolutely off the chain. Like, yeah. derailed. It is so flipping long. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like, why is this song so long? It is eight minutes and... 42 seconds it's the longest song on the record it's one of the longest songs you'll find on most popular records i think there's no need for it to be that long (laughs) i think this one's always fallen a little flat for me personally the drums are really cool and some of the lyrics are awesome but the lyrics are always awesome so really that doesn't make this song an exception i agree and i wrote down another song i can tell isn't gonna leave an impression that's fair enough and it sure didn't for the entire eight minutes and 42 seconds (laughs) some of the lyrics are okay it's a song all about hearing and feeling the way that this relationship is breaking down I hear you fade away. I gave my life away and I feel no pain. And the only other lyric I really earmarked was in verse three. He says, she was my angel because of course there's more angel symbolism. And he says, what I've recovered of me, I put into a box underneath my bed. And I just like that image. I like that metaphor a lot. I think the song's lyrics almost abrasively hit the nail on the head. There's not really much of a metaphor. I mean, you're getting a lot of the, I feel no pains in there. Yeah, it's blunt. Uh, Silver fork is blunt. (laughs) Silver fork is blunt. It's a blunt fork. Yep. And this song just ends with eternal chaos. Yeah, it does. It almost hurts to listen to. It's painful to listen to. Not that that's not the point of it, but I mean, it's a nine minute song and it's at least the last 45 seconds or more is just corrosive. I mean, we talked about the end of some of these songs, like Cherub Rock is organized chaos with that head first dive into the end and Rocket is like a rocket taking off with all the chaos that builds at the end. This one is, it's just noise. <laughs> But after the noise is over, we get a little taste of Sweet Sweet. It's the shortest song by far, contrasted with 9-minute track 11. Sweet Sweet is only a minute and 38 seconds. I said that this song almost felt like an interlude because of how short and sweet, pun intended, it was. Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's super simple, too. Uh Uh-huh. At the core of the song, the lyrics are, Sweet, sweet little agony, I'll take all that you have for me. Where are we going? They all want you to change. I love the way this song started. I love the way it went. I love the way it ended. I loved everything about it. This song got the honorable mention. The way it sets up the final track, I think, earned it the honorable mention. It goes really hand in hand with Luna. Yeah, you're right. It has a role to play, and it plays it well. It plays it very well, and I would have loved a longer version of this song that was like a full fleshed out song sweet 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 yeah like double (laughs) yeah but you're right this song does do a great job at setting up luna which we will talk about now because i feel like luna would have felt very out of place when put next to silver fork yes it would have so sweet sweet really plays that role of getting you in the mindset ready for this closing ballad yeah my first note on it was this song better be about the moon darn it (laughs) Well, lucky for you, it absolutely is. People presume that it was written about Courtney Love, but in true poetic Billy Corgan fashion, he said, Luna is for the moon. It can never be for the one you love. And in the liner notes for the record, he said, I'm in love with someone that doesn't love me. This is my way to prove a point that's not worth making. The lyrics are captivating too. They are. What moon songs do you sing your babies? What sunshine do you bring? Who belongs? Who decides who's crazy? Who writes wrongs where others cling? Lots of questions posed in the first verse. Mm. Mm-hmm. And in the second verse, he kind of comes back with an answer for them. Yeah, he kind of answers them in the chorus. Those moon songs that you sing your babies will be the songs to see you through. Uh-huh. And he says, I'll hear your song. If you want me to, I'll sing along. It's just this really sweet, really pretty sentiment. Yeah. And the record closes on this super gentle outro. I'm in love with you on repeat. And you know, I usually have an issue with repetitiveness, but it was a very thematic, sweet way to end what was a very dark album. Yeah. Like it ends in a very calm and kind of poetic ending. Yeah, I don't think this is too bad of a closer, to be honest. I liked it. It's not necessarily the strongest song, but for me, it feels like the perfect blend of love and loathing that's so pervasive in this album. Yeah. Like, this is a whole record about who and what Corgan loves and what he struggles with and what he hates, and it's heavy. It's a heavy, heavy emotional record, and I think Luna does a great job at expressing this hope through brokenness idea that comes up in so many other places. Like, yeah, life sucks, and I hate this, and I hate that, and this person has wronged me, or I'm such a 
a social outcast, but I still hold on to this hope. And so this I'm in love with you at the end, it just feels like this simultaneous hope of being in love and feeling that positive feeling. And yet it's blended so deeply with this longing, knowing that it's never going to happen and that the person doesn't love you back, you know? Yeah. It's complex. And I like it. It's a great way to close the record. Uh, so that brings the album to a close, which means it's time for the final spin. That's right. The final spin, the part of the show where we deliver our final rankings and close out the episode. Let's talk first about favorite songs top three no particular order quiet today disarm yeah that works <laughs> with the honorable mention going to sweet sweet quite a list there picking a favorite song feels bad like i feel wrong choosing a favorite because there are so many merits to each of these songs most of them yeah i just want to pick eight favorites <laughs> Chair brought quiet today disarm mayonnaise also good i think mayonnaise is my all-around favorite though i think chair brock is the most fun to listen to i think quiet or disarm have some of the best lyrics and i think today has some of the most like deep themes i think it's thematically one of the strongest but i think mayonnaise is a good intersection point for all of those elements yeah it, it's a good one so yeah that's favorite songs let's talk about scores my first scoring category is music and I think the music on this album is really unique. Really, it's this overdubbed wall of guitars, this pumpkin guitar army, the shoegaze style that really sets this record apart. I think the music is really, really well done. What's your score for music? So I'm giving music a 93. 93, all right. In terms of lyrics, I mean, we talked about he's just a poetic person. He sees the world in his own lens, and he's great at expressing that in poetry. They land exactly how he wants them to land. I think my lyric score may be too low. I don't know but it's an 87. Yeah, that does feel low for all the praise you gave it. I know, and I might have to rethink it in a later listen, but that's where it is for now. Production, I think it's pretty excellent throughout. I mean, there are a couple moments where it dips, so I don't know. I'm, I'm giving production pretty high marks, 94. I love the distortion. I love the overdubs. The guitars are great. The drumming is fantastic. Hand bleeding, drumming, come on. How can you not give instrumentation a 94? It's true. And in terms of the overall vibe, they're very consistent in their sound. He's always strong on his lyrics. The whole album feels very cohesive thematically, and a lot of the metaphors that come throughout are prescient. They're really good, really strong. I'm giving Vibe a 93. All right, pretty much all 90s except for lyrics, which you've already said is maybe a little low. Yeah, so according to our friends in the math department, my final score comes out to a 92.3. That sounds like it puts it just a little above Nirvana. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact... <laughs> It is not the first album that I've ranked a 92.3. Well, have we had another 92.3 on this podcast? We've had two other 92.3s. Oh, gosh, really? Billy Joel was a 92.3. Nirvana was a 92.3. So I'm going to have to dig into the tie-breaking protocol for this one. So there's a weighted average, which is the 92.3. Sure. The unweighted average is what breaks the tie, which is each of these four scores is out of 100. So the one that's earned the most total points out of 400 is the one that would be at the top of the tiebreaker list. That is Siamese Dream. Really? It beats out Billy Joel? Oh, yeah. It beats out Billy Joel and Nirvana. It's up there in the top 40. Wow. That's right. I really like Siamese Dream. It's a surprising record in a lot of ways. I liked it a lot, too. Uh, I definitely liked it better than Nirvana's, which, again, is kind of what I'm comparing it to in my mind from a sound standpoint. I liked it better than a lot of the ones we've done, actually. It sounded like it from what you were saying, which is actually, I'm pretty happy with that and surprised by it because I wasn't sure how you'd respond to this one. What really did it for me was the lyrics. I, I'm going to say the music, but specifically how the music supported the lyrics. He's an excellent lyrics writer up there, you know, with the Billy Joels of the world. In terms of listenability, though, it's weird. I would say only maybe like of the 13 songs, only maybe five of them would make it onto my playlist, though, which is interesting. As much as I like them, from a re-listenability standpoint, it's not necessarily as high. And so that's why it doesn't quite make it up there into the nine scores with, like, the band Caminos and the Dua Lipas that we've done. Sure. And so instead, this one's going to get an eight out of ten. Right. And the mixtaper has specially requested a unit for this one. And so it's going to get eight randomly named horses. CEOs in a tea house out of 10. Okay, well, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> you pretty much just rolled all the facts into one. Yeah. Eight randomly named horse CEOs of the tea house. Okay, I'll forever be reminded of my shame with that being your unit. Thanks for memorializing my defeat. I think the mixtaper. 
Well, yeah, I, I think an eight's not unreasonable. I think your logic for not giving it a nine is consistent with what you say on everything, you know. What do you think? Was this a, a good bounce back from Kin? I know Kin was a bit of a letdown for you. So how do we bounce? Yeah, it definitely bounced back up. I'm actually looking forward to next week's episode way more. Oh, next week. I'm I'm excited. Anyway, thanks for listening to our special October-themed pumpkin-smashing episode of Spin It. Hey, if you want more Spin It content, if you want to be up-to-date on the albums that are coming next or hear from us about behind-the-scenes stuff, check out our website at spinitpod.com. Check out our Twitter, at spinitpod. Check out our Instagram, at spinitpodofficial. Check out everything. Have a great week. Have a wonderful fall season. Keep spinning. Keep spinning. Have a great week. See you later. Bye-bye now. <laughs>